thank you back. I, uh, Tia and I trained together for many years together, which is a way of knowing each other quite special, quite special, deep, deep bond, permanent bond. And I've also, I'm grateful to be here with the Reverend Greg, also a very old friend, and Reverend Catherine. And I've met some of you, but I'm really glad to be here. I look forward to meeting you all. Today, I would like to talk about something that has become uh, really useful and interesting for me again, the four foundations of mindfulness, or we say uh, sometimes a, a translation I like a little bit better, the four establishments of mindfulness. So I'll be saying something about that. And also, I'll talk about uh, what we call the triple treasure, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha in this context. The, and I'll, you know, a, a story came up while we were sitting this morning that seems useful, too. Um, it's a koan, a Zen koan, and the monk came to the master and said, how is it when the 10,000 things are coming all at once? And the master said, don't try to control them. So how is it when everything is coming all at once? Don't try to control them. So mindfulness is a very important practice, uh, a way of being, a, a, a mind, a, an attitude of mind, in which we sit present, non-judgmental, steady, um, and present in the midst of what's happening. And in this ancient teaching of the Buddha, um, it was divided into four establishments. And I sort of like the word establishment as, a, as the translation because foundation implies that it's underneath you and there's something else. But establishment is, that's what's happening. You're established in it. And the four different uh, categories or focus, foci of, of mindfulness in this teaching are body, mindfulness of body, uh, feelings, mindfulness of feelings, mind, mindfulness of mind, mind objects, mindfulness of mind objects. And among all of those, within each of those, there are several different practices to do, but these are very rich, ancient practices, and I think it's important to know why we practice. What's the reason? What do we get from these things? it makes it more powerful when you know what you're after. And that's why when you take up these things that we've studied, you study them at the beginning of practice, you study them in the middle of Zen practice, and you just keep picking them up and turning them over and over. And when you do that, uh, you notice you have gotten something out of it. So it's kind of useful to recognize you already have gotten something out of it and to reaffirm there are things to get out of this practice. So it's good to know why? And here's what the Buddha said. This is why we do it. This is how the sutra starts. I heard these words of the Buddha one time when he was living at Kamasadharma, a market town of the Kuru people. The Buddha addressed the bhikkhus, O bhikkhus. And the monks replied, Yes, Lord. The Buddha said, Monks, there is a most wonderful way to help living beings realize purification 
overcome directly grief and sorrow, end pain and anxiety, travel the right path, and realize nirvana. This way is the four establishments of mindfulness. So he had a reason for teaching this, which is to, you know, rephrase it, to help us deal with uh, grief and sorrow, pain and anxiety, figuring out which path to travel, and uh, transcendence. So he had a reason for teaching it, and we have reasons for wanting to practice mindfulness. He said, here's another one, another translation. It's good to read various translations. Once the Lord was staying among the Kurus, thus have I heard, once the Lord was staying among the Kurus, there is a market town of theirs called Kamasadama, and there the Lord addressed the monks. Monks, Lord, they replied. And the Lord said, There is, monks, this one way to the purification of beings for the overcoming of sorrow and distress, for the disappearance of pain and sadness, for the gaining of the right path, for the realization of transcendence, that is to say, the four foundations of mindfulness. The first one, mindfulness of body. Um, You might think that this means just your body. And it might, you know, sound like it just means your breathing, your sensations, the postures of your body. And those are some of the categories that we are mindful of when we're doing mindfulness of body sitting present, aware, clear, and steady, mindful of sensation. One of the things we notice when we do mindfulness practice, this is a principle of various teachings, what you focus on, you amplify. So you kind of notice that when you're doing uh, mindfulness practices. What you focus on, you amplify. And I'll come back to that one later. But uh, when we're doing mindfulness of our breathing, it's just being present, clear, aware of the in-breath, of the out-breath, just as it is. Just observing, just observing the positions of the body, the sitting body, the still body, the lying down body, just aware, as it is, of the sensations, of the posture, And it's very portable. You can do this anywhere. So these are profoundly uh, important practices for the relief of stress and anxiety because you can go to those places all the time. And this is often what is taught now in various important schools of uh, stress relief, mindfulness of your own body. But the Buddha says something else also. He says... First, there are the instructions on how to do it. Uh, The monk trains herself thinking, I will breathe in, conscious of the whole body. She trains herself thinking, I will breathe out, conscious of the whole body. She trains herself thinking, I will breathe in, calming the whole bodily process. She trains herself thinking, I will breathe out, calming the whole bodily process. So on. Just as a skilled turner or his assistant in making a long turn knows that he is making a long turn. I think a turner is probably like operating a lathe or something. Uh, He knows that he is making a long turn, or in making a short turn, knows that he is making a short turn. 
so too a monk in breathing in a long breath knows that he breathes in a long breath, and so on. But the Buddha goes on to say, so he abides contemplating body as body internally, contemplating body as body externally, contemplating body as body both internally and externally. He abides contemplating arising phenomena, vanishing phenomena, or else mindfulness that there is body is present to him just to the extent necessary for knowledge and awareness. Very subtle. So the internal uh, means your own body. The external means other bodies. So part of our practice is actually awareness of other bodies. Studying other bodies. Studying uh, where they are in relation to you. Studying how they're moving in relation to you. Studying what's going on in other bodies. This is actually part of the hallmark of our school. We say we have a family style. Zen has a family style. And part of the family style of Zen is this close practice together. Awareness of other bodies, mindfulness of other bodies. When we talk about the three jewels, the three jewels, there's the Buddha, there's the Dharma, or the teaching, and there's the Sangha, which is the community of practitioners. So here we are, the Sangha. And Suzuki Roshi once taught that uh, we have many family styles in uh, Zen, even. There are many family styles in Buddhism. There are many family styles in Zen. But our school, our Zen, or our, our particular school of Buddhism, Zen, according to Suzuki Roshi, he said it very explicitly, we tend to focus on the Sangha. We tend to uh, really benefit in terms of our realization practice from our sangha practice. And this was clear. As Tia said, we had a big um, pilgrimage. We took a pilgrimage to Japan. So 22 members of the Houston Zen Center went to Japan. And the Houston Zen Center is just like the Brooklyn Zen Center in the sense that uh, we all came here for this, and we will all go somewhere else for the next event. People in Houston are busy people, just like you. And there are sounds, ambient sounds, when we're meditating, just exactly like here. I felt right at home. <laughs> and it's identical in other ways. It is immaculately clean, although to the teacher's eye, it never looks that way, right? <laughs> but it's immaculately clean. It's set up to encourage calmness and relaxation the moment you walk in the door. It's inviting, and a few other things. And I hadn't quite realized how beneficial it would be for our group to go to Japan together. And it's, we went together not because I thought, well, we all should go to Japan. That's where the real thing is happening. We went because the members of Suzuki Roshi's family who still live in the main temple, your home temple also, you're welcome to go, uh, had come to Houston for a big ceremony, and it seemed like, we should go visit. And for a lot of people who'd never been to Japan, it was very enticing, because we'll have a place to stay, we'll have friends, and then from there we can branch out and go visit many other temples. So that's how it came, came about. And I had not realized how beneficial it would be for us and for me through their eyes to be in Japan. Because partly 
the self, yourself, arises, our self arises in the gaps of experience. It is emerging all the time. The 10,000 things are behind you, the 10,000 things are in front of you. We arise right there at that intersection. So arising in that intersection was uh, quite, quite enjoyable. But one of the things that you learn is how similar this is to a Japanese Zen temple. Of course, the architecture is slightly different, but in a Zen temple, the Buddhas tend to be rather small. And they tend to be, often they have a curtain in front of them. They tend to be protected and not the dominant feature. There are schools of Buddhism, you know, where the Buddha, we went to some temples in the Nara school in Nara, where um, the Buddha is 30 feet tall, weighs tons. Or there are Thai Buddhas that are covered with gold, and they're as big as this room. They're beautiful. It's fantastic. Uh, But you notice when you go to a Zen temple, the Buddhas tend to be rather small. And the style tends to feel like a family. So in all those Soto Zen temples, the light bulb went off. Families live there. And the practice is family, family style. People have to learn how to move together. People have to learn how to relate together. And I I have to tell you, it was really fun working with all my Houston Sangha, learning how to live together in a tight little space. You guys are a little more used to it because you're used to having many people in close proximity on sidewalks. And people in Houston are not. We don't walk in Houston. We drive. (laughs) And in fact, uh, we had an, an exciting adventure on the very first day when we were making our train connection, which you guys could all do easily, but Houston people, even the public transportation was an entertainment. (laughs) So we had to make a quick connection to get from the airport in Tokyo to a smaller regional train, go a long way to the temple, and two of the people didn't get off in time because we are used, in Texas, this is about the right personal space. And I kept, I felt like a mo- it brought out the mother hen in me. I, I kept going around them and saying, get closer together, get closer. We're going to have to get off the train. One of my favorite people, wonderful man, the Tonto. He's rather a large Texas guy, very tall. And he was standing in the middle of the subway with his hands like this. And he, he's a dear person. He didn't notice that Japanese people were walking under his arm to get off the train. So... After we lost two people on the train, we got our act together a little better. <laughs> and they figured out that they, you know, they went to the next stop and came back. But I had what Mrs. Suzuki once said, very sorry feeling. <laughs> but in this temple and in the whole uh, atmosphere of the temple, you realize it's family practice. And when you join that practice, as you have joined, as we have joined in, in Houston, you become part of the family. Kind of whether you know it or not, eventually you realize you've been adopted into this family. The temple was beautiful and old, and in a region of Japan called Shizuoka Ken. Have any of you been to Japan? Okay. In Shizuoka Ken? Yeah. I, I'm not sure how big it is geographically. I was thinking this morning, maybe it's as big as Brooklyn and Queens together. Maybe Shizuoka Ken. And if I were to tell you 
there were ten Soto Zen temples there, that would be a surprise, right? Or if I were to tell you that there were 40, that would be a surprise. And the fact is, there are 2,000 Soto Zen temples in that area. Each one beautiful, each one with a family, a head priest and spouse, and if the children are still young enough, the children, and the practitioners. And the bigger ones also have training monks, but usually it's the family and the practitioners and visitors living Soto Zen style. It was fantastic. And we actualize mindfulness of body in that way. You can't avoid it. So everybody has to learn how to move respectfully with each other. And therefore, a tendency, it's possible to think that this mindfulness of body, of breathing, of posture, is totally personal. But our family style is that it's intrapersonal, interpersonal, mindfulness of body. So that's also a portable practice, because secretly, in Japan, it's very conscious. Everybody's always aware of your body. Your body, right. Everyone is always aware of your body and uh, taking it into account. It feels lovely. One of our members dropped her puffy coat because it was cold, and she happened to be wearing a pink, hot pink puffy coat. And she kept going, and a woman picked it up, and on her way, calling her, saying, excuse me, excuse me, she folded the coat neatly and gave it back to her. Mindfulness of body. Then, the next one is mindfulness of feeling, which is usually uh, mindfulness of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And in this one, we have access to the rapidity of our mental processes. Because there's always one of those attitudes before a mental construction gets going. There's always pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and then the show starts. And if we're paying attention, we watch the self emerge right there. Just a little bit of a turn toward pleasant, unpleasant, or the unconsciousness unconsciousness of neutrality, sort of. Greg said some really interesting things about that last night, how important that was, and I'm going to meditate on that. That was good. Uh, Right there, though, the self emerges and we can watch it. We can be mindful of that activity. It's not just being mindful of, oh, pleasant, that cool water, pleasant. It's self-emerged. I have another example from the Japan trip, because I, I, I just want you to have a sense of it so that uh, it, you may eventually go there and get some of these experiences. The um, activity of cooking. I heard some cooking for a while out there, and then I didn't hear it. But we cooked in the temple, Suzuki Roshi's temple, 500 years old. They just celebrated their 500-year birthday. Uh, And Suzuki Roshi's son and wife are there running the temple. And their son and his wife are there, second generation. And their two children are also there, very active. So we were cooking away in the kitchen with our Tenzo, Dale Kent doing everything. People in Japan do not waste food. They do not waste food. Rice is donated. And if a few grains of rice in the cooking process drop down on the floor, you immediately 
get down and very respectfully pick that rice up, dust it off, and put it back into the cooking area. No food is wasted. And we were cooking away, and somebody, was, somebody had donated some lettuce to us, so several of the people were uh, cleaning the lettuce, tearing the lettuce. And Mrs. Suzuki, I guess I will call her, Okazan, the, the wife or the spouse is actually a very important position. They are equally involved. And this woman is a dynamo. She's, I don't know, 20 years older than I am, just a dynamo, present, alert, a practitioner. And she came into the kitchen just to see if we needed any help. They'd given us the whole temple kitchen, and they were eating in their quarters. But she came in. I was in there for some reason. And she looked down into the compost bucket and saw something, and she leaned over, and she pulled it out, and she brought it over to me and said, this is good, isn't it? And I looked at it, and I said, why, yes, it is. You know, It's a perfectly fine piece of lettuce. And so she, ha- she handed it to the person. And then she looked and said, hey, this one's also good. And she handed it, don't you think? Don't you think this one is good? And I said, yes, I think so. And then she kept doing that, pulling them out. And some she said, do you think, well, no, maybe that one's not so good. And she put that one back. So this, for me, is in the realm of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, because it was in that realm of uh, just a quick, so quick it happens that the lovely people who were tearing the lettuce thought unpleasant or not so good. And she came in and said, it's food. Look at it more closely. But the lovely part, and the part that's our family style, is she didn't just say, oh, bad Zen students, take this and use it. It was the feeling of inquiry. It was the feeling of being present. She looked at it, and she actually wanted it to be a question that we would relate about together. This one's okay, isn't it? What do you think? And I was immediately involved and engaged and offered to consider this very important matter. Is this good or is it not? And, and actually, at first, I, I didn't get my whole consciousness there. I just saw her, a woman I adore, and I would have said yes to anything. But she really wanted me to look at this lettuce, and I did, and it was perfect. It really was. And each one after that was an opportunity for us to engage together the feeling of inquiry and ourselves were totally together over this lettuce. And everybody in in our group who was in the kitchen benefited from this. So our family style, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, is a very active place for us. The benefit of being mindful in, in, the, in the presence of feelings and in the presence of your body, when we're being mindful of the body, is that, like the 10,000 things coming at us, we are present, and gradually we become less reactive. So when we're actually doing the practice, we're not sitting there thinking, I'm not sitting there thinking, this will help me wake up, this will end grief and sorrow. This is just sitting in the presence of the 10,000 things. And noticing after a while, less reactivity. Less reactivity 
to the sensations of the body, to the postures of the body, to the issue of whether they picked good lettuce or bad lettuce. It's just, oh, here's another situation coming at me. Then the next of the foundations of mindfulness is um, uh, mind, mindfulness of mind. For us, we're so sophisticated about what mind is and cognitive research, so let's just let the Buddha simplify it for us. The Buddha just has, or the old teachings of meditation, just say, drop all those complicated things. Just admit your mind is kind of simple. It is really just a lustful mind or a hateful mind or a calm mind or a something mind. Usually I, I, when I tell people, when I'm talking with our new people in Houston, I say it's kind of the mood. It's the mood of your mind. It's bigger than just all the little details that we're seeing. It's it's the shape of your mind. It's a, where is this? How monks does a monk abide contemplating mind as mind? Here a monk knows a lustful mind as lustful, a mind free from lust as free from lust, a hating mind is hating, a mind free from hate as free from hate, a deluded mind is deluded, an undiluted mind is undiluted, contracted mind as contracted, distracted mind as distracted, developed mind as developed, undeveloped mind as undeveloped, a surpassed mind as surpassed, an unsurpassed mind as unsurpassed, a mind concentrated, an un unconcentrated mind, a liberated mind, an unliberated mind. These are the minds. And the details are happening, the 10,000 things are happening within those minds. When we're becoming, when we're doing this practice and slowly noticing that less reactivity is happening, more of those wonderful things come up and show themselves to us out of the, out of the activity. And one of the subtle ways to do this, as this lettuce example for me helped me realize, when you get used to what's happening in the mind, when I get used to what's happening in the mind, we sit there with the 10,000 things, less reactive. Oh, yeah, when that happens, oh, yeah, that, this arises. The 10,000 things are coming from this direction. The 10,000 habits are coming from this direction. The emerging of the self is happening just in the utter present. And you can notice, well, usually, if someone says, this lettuce is bad or this lettuce is good, I have a reaction. I would say, I don't know what. I can imagine that maybe in old times I would have felt embarrassed that my group was wasting food, or I would have felt um, mad that she was making us go through the garbage to get the lettuce or something like that. When you know your habits well, you notice, I felt neither of those things in this situation. And we get very close because as I said at the beginning, what you focus on, you amplify. You have to know the power of that. But so I focused on the charm of Okasan giving us this teaching about the lettuce. 
and her inquiry and openness and presence in that moment. But the awareness, it didn't happen. I'm just giving a theoretical example. It could have come up in, in another situation. I might have been embarrassed about our waste of the food. And my mind would have glanced off of that, but not focused. Because to focus in mindfulness is to amplify. So if I'd thought, usually I'm embarrassed, okay, it comes up, goes away like the 10,000 things. If I focus on it, I'm inviting that feeling. So mindfulness can become uh, this very subtle and incredibly entertaining practice. <laughs> or when my people got lost, I had various feelings, and one of them was really sadness. I was sad that I'd lost two people already, even though I'd created this great teamwork concept. And then after that, they really got into the teamwork thing. <laughs> I had the red, gold, sort of like Tibetan colors or something. I had red, gold, blue, and green teams. And each the team captain had to keep track of their five people. And even though we practiced together as a group, that felt a little kindergartenish to my sophisticated people, I think. But after we lost two people, they were on it. <laughs> Red team present. <laughs> Another example of mind when we were at the temple. Is it okay that I tell these stories about Japan? Okay. They're so alive. It just was just a couple of weeks ago. We just got back. Um, Hojo, Hojo-san, Suzuki Roshi's son, is a very, very funny and alive man, and very free in his, his movements. He's just a card, you know, and just totally fun. But he's recently been the head of training at Eheiji. So he had a great position for several years. And the new monks really liked him. He was their favorite head. All these people who have to go for their intense training to Eheji uh, really liked him because he gave Dharma talks that weren't just academic. They were teaching stories. So this is an example of our, our family going back, because he learned some of that from us, you know, how we teach in America. And he took that back and reapplied it at Eheji, the big training monastery for Soto Zen monks. So the way we practice together has gone back and influenced the way Zen monks are now being trained and making them more curious about coming here. But it made his teaching style much more like what we're doing. We tell stories and we try to make it relevant to the way we live. So he, he told us that he, he would be willing to give a Dharma talk while we were there, which was quite a gift. We thought, oh, that's terrific. Luckily, we had some people who speak Japanese and could translate. And he sat up there in the beautiful 500-year-old Dharma hall and started talking about his zazen. My zazen, he said, in my zazen, I let the wind blow through my mind. I let the colors go through my mind. I let the sounds go through my mind. I sit here in the presence and let these things pass through. He was giving us his mind. And then, over there, we'll say, those are the gates, I mean, the giant sliding screens of the temple. And there was this noise happening, which I wasn't paying any attention. But Okasan, Mrs. Suzuki, was over there closing those. And 
Oh, Joe san was sitting here going, the wind going through my mind, and his eyes popped open. And he said, don't shut those doors. <laughs> and she said, but the dust is coming in. It's a big controversy in Japan because the dust of the desertification of China is blowing over into Japan. So it feels very dusty there. It's the dust from China. It's like the old school blowing into Japan. And she said, but the dust is coming in. He said, but it's so nice, the fresh air. But the dust, but the fresh air. It was the family style. This is our family style, where in the middle of a Dharma talk, they start having a, a marital agreement, disagreement about <laughs> whether the doors are going to be open. And I, I actually can't remember who won that one. I don't remember. All I remember was, wow, <laughs> a Dharma talk. This is great. <laughs> and then we turned back, and then he went on with the principles of Zazen. This is our family style. Then after Japan, after, excuse me, after uh, Rinso N, we went to Eheiji. And then after Eheiji, I want to tell one more story about Japan. Although this fits into the mind objects category. Mind objects, usually in the traditional teachings, we're aware of the arising of the hindrances. We're aware of the arising of the factors of enlightenment. We're aware of specific things that we're encouraged to notice. And also you notice, again, the non-arising. Once you get used to the arising of the hindrances, like uh, remorse, aware of that, then you can notice the non-arising of remorse under certain circumstances. You get used to the arising of greed. After a while, you learn how to notice the non-arising of greed without turning it into greed. Uh, and the other factors of enlightenment, one of which is joy. There are seven of them. And one of them is investigation of states, which, which from my earliest times as a practitioner has been a touchstone for me, because as soon as you're investigating your mind, that's one of the seven factors of enlightenment. So I love that. And then when you turn your focus onto that, you amplify it, and then a little joy starts creeping in. Even in the most dismal circumstances, if you're investigating your mind, and you focus on it, um, just the investigation itself, some joy and ease start to get attracted to that. So after Eheiji, we went to Hoshinji, where I trained. 20 years ago, I trained there as a very beginning student in their system. I'd already been at Tassajara for a while, but I was a new monk. And it's a monastery for men, because Mayazumi Roshi recommended that I go there. So there were 30 other monks and me and one other woman who was the, the abbot's uh, jisha. He was quite cool. He still is. And I fit into the system with a lot of um, complaint. No. A lot of, it was difficult at the, at the beginning, but I, I loved it and I loved the training. And, and then I came back to the United States. But while I was there, I was always a junior monk. Although as new people would come in, they were liberated enough that I would advance in the little hierarchy. I would not have to be at the very back of the line. And this caused, it's a, it's a rather uh, gender-defined society in some ways, especially then. And so this caused a little bit of agitation, like, why is she ahead of us? This is a male monastery. And the Roshi said, this is the way I want it. So that happened. But then 
I came back for a visit after all these years and brought the group and went into Hoshinji, which is also very old and beautiful. It's a little underpopulated now because the Roshi is very sick, so he's not accepting new students. But when we got there, they treated us with great courtesy, although none of my friends were there, but we knew about each other. And they invited me to be the efficient, to be the doshi. And so I just accepted the teaching staff and went over and was doshi, and we did a ceremony. But while the ceremony was happening, I was very moved. I was watching the mind objects come up. I was grateful. I was moved. I was impressed. But also I was thoughtful because it's actually not been very long that any woman would be invited to do that. And I know that it's good that we don't focus on that, and we all just sort of take that for granted here in our country. But every now and then I feel like reminding everybody that it hasn't been so long that the heads of a monastery would just turn to a woman, give her the teaching staff, and have her go up and do the ceremony. So even in my center, we just sort of take it for granted, but it's very special. So now and then, now and then we should remember that and appreciate this fact of America. And in fact, I think that this is another, we are having a back influence on Japan, which is one of the reasons why they could have done it, because they saw us coming in, and <laughs> they saw my group treating me with respect, which I had had to tell them to do before we got there. <laughs> I had to sit them down and say, yes, we're very democratic, but would you please carry my bags and let me walk in the room first for this occasion? <laughs> they will be expecting to see that. <laughs> and we were, we were talking about it the other night, Greg and, and Tia and I, and actually that has had a nice impact on my group because it's good to treat people with respect, even if they are just the teacher. <laughs> but the, I, watching these mind objects come up and watching, staying with the gratitude and having some memories of the other thing and... Uh, not, and choosing to just sort of let that come glancing through the territory, focusing on the gratitude for how diverse we are and how far we've come and how much now we have to teach people. So that's an actually thought balloon. That's one of the reasons why we need to be slightly conscious of it because this is how we will teach other people. We've made this change, but we, there are still people who need to learn this from us. So, our family style is, whether we call it the Four Foundations or the Four Establishments of Mindfulness or not, our family style is to work together as a family to care for our Zen style. Zen is family style. Uh, to work together to take care of the body, which includes this building, each other, all beings, and be present in the midst of the 10,000 things coming at us. This is our style. Thank you very much. May our intention... Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, 
please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.